Hello everyone, it's Precious Pioneer with a bonus podcast as mentioned before. This week's Monday Brews with Precious covered a new clean wine brand that shook up the world of wine, but not necessarily in a good way. It sparked with this Forbes article that trended in the food industry and seemed like a unique take on 2020 winemaking. What I missed and misunderstood before was how incredible marketing can be, and winemakers and people all over the world were sure to correct the error in this trendy promotion. I'm always the type of person to change my mind when presented with new information, and today I have a special guest and wine enthusiast, Joshua Dunning, all the way from UK, who's a writer for a well-known blog on Word on the Grapevine. He's here with me today, breaking down what on earth is clean wine. Hi, welcome to Precious the Foodie Podcast, the show that will uncover stories through palettes and memories. My name is Precious Pioneer, your host. I'm a chef, a creative, and a foodie. I'm meeting people all over the world using food as a medium to highlight truths into bite-sized pieces. So, so my name's Josh. I'm from from the UK. I run the I run the wine blog Word on the Grapevine, um, which has become a sort of a, an obsessive hobby. By by day, I am a process engineer. I work in the automotive industry. So started writing about wine probably about two years ago, and um, since then I've built some good connections in the industry and really started to, to sort of dive into some fascinating topics. And and that's obviously brought me to I suppose being in a position where where now I find myself writing on sort of current affairs and and hot topics. So that's that's really what's brought us, I think, to this conversation. <laughs> cool. Um. So. You said that you started writing about wine two years ago. How did you get into that? Were you just always a really big wine lover or a writer? Or, you know, how did you get started in that hobby? Yeah, so I mean, probably a little bit of, a little bit of both. I think, first of all, I was, um, I was a foodie. So I liked going out for food. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how I sort of made the transition into into trying more wine. You know, having conversations with um, sommeliers in restaurants and and starting to figure out. You know, there's a little bit more to to wine than just going to the supermarket and picking a bottle up. I can I can I can find some more enjoyment. I can travel. I can learn. And on top of that, I'm I'm obviously an academic. I've got an undergraduate, a master's of science. So I, I enjoy research and writing. And the two of those just kind of came together. To be honest, I I started to travel a little bit more um, mm-hmm. mainly to Europe and as I did that I started to I suppose sort of diarize those journeys and um, and journal my sort of learnings and my findings and and I, I sort of quickly figured out there were people that wanted to listen so yeah it, it went from there but it blew up much quicker than I expected to be honest I started picking up, mm-hmm. I started picking up on topics that were were quite difficult to traverse so mainly scientific um, scientific points around wine and started to focus on them and, and that proved really popular no, that's so that's so cool. Okay, so starting your wine blog journey, what would you say is the most interesting thing that has happened thus far? I know that you explored and you talked to different sommeliers and things like that. What is something that is really interesting or unique that you didn't know before you started uh, your blog? I think, to be honest, the it sounds very it sounds very geeky, but the probably the most interesting sort of learning point for me through, throughout wine has been speaking to speaking to winemakers and really understanding the well 
as opposed to understanding, getting to grips with the nuance of winemaking and how very small decisions in the winery and in the vineyard have a huge impact on on what's in the glass. And I think when we when we pick up a, a glass of wine, we you know many of us enjoy it, but we we just don't understand what actually goes into to that product and how complex it is. And that was the most interesting thing for me, you know, trying to start figuring out why does wine, you know, why does wine taste like this? Why does why does grape juice taste like grapes, but wine doesn't taste like grape juice? <laughs> right. Right. I think, yeah, I think that's actually really interesting. I did mention for my listeners that I did take a couple of wine classes um, when I was in college. I studied hospitality. And so naturally in restaurants, it's part of it to study, take a couple of wine classes. And so I think learning the actual processes of everything that goes into wine yeah. is just incredibly interesting. And so recently with this article that came out, I just thought it was, for those who don't know about the Times or the Forbes article that came out referencing clean wine. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. And then once we had our conversation about the discrepancies between the article and actual real life, I realized very quickly what had happened. And so I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that too. Um, What are your thoughts on clean wine? And is it something that actually exists? Or is it something that's kind of more of a facade, you know? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting topic. So I think in terms of what we think as consumers, it's when we hear the word clean, for me it has it has a lot of connotations and it, it insinuates a lot of things. It, it it you know when we hear the word dirty and unnatural, we these are you know heavily loaded with negative connotation. So when we when we hear the word clean straight away, we think you know of we think of health, we think of no additives, we think of nothing nasty in a product. And I think inevitably, what you do when you if you label a product product clean, you without realizing you insinuate to the consumer that products which are not labeled clean are somehow the opposite of all of the things that your product is and i think that's where the problem is with clean wine because there's no real understanding of what clean wine means most wine that you buy as a consumer to be honest is relatively free of additives and certainly free of any additives that are harmless but fundamentally wine is alcohol and and alcohol should always be drunk responsibly so i think to insinuate that alcohol is in some way healthy or or clean for us is potentially problematic. I think as much as I enjoy wine and as much as I love the industry, we we do have to recognise that all things in in moderation. So yeah, I think clean wine is something we should be very careful with, particularly when we look at, I suppose, the claims attached to what a clean wine is, which mainly come from, you know, the the, the Forbes article that you, you mentioned. Right. And so something that I had realized is that we see the because the thing is, though, I really love tackling that sort of label policing in the food industry. It's very apparent. And as people transition into what they care about, what is in their bodies. And I think you're right with the clean. It has a very specific connotation. So just adding that to a label instantly makes the products seem a lot better. And I mentioned this example often. It's like when people started really caring about, you know, calories and fat intake or whatever, you'd see like bags of flour being labeled fat-free, sugar-free and all these different things. But it's like, duh, you know, it's (laughs) like all these things, you know, like of, you know, it never had those things to begin with. So it alludes as if there was a problem with all these different other type of products, even though it didn't exist in the first place. 
Yeah. And so there are um, there terms like like calorie free and clean are just a marketer's dream because when you know consumers are very busy and when we're in a supermarket or in a store we're looking for very quick you know we're looking for directions to tell us what is and isn't healthy so when we see yeah. words like clean uh, it stand it stands out to us in in so many ways that we we become very attracted to it. Right, exactly. And so as people are looking for those things, I think something that the Good Clean Wine Company, what they did was, uh, it's like smart. I see why they did it, but it also just is terrible for like everyone else, you know? And I think that was a little bit unethical how they went about it. Because the thing is, though, as we're transitioning to being more sustainable and looking for a lifestyle that kind of aligns with that, wine is seen as something that's very you know, not necessarily old or relevant, you know what I mean? But the thing is, though, a lot of, they really fit that mold of like a new modern wine and you don't see that very often. And so for them to take advantage of that marketing, I think it's very, you know, it it, it was going to happen. If it was, if it wasn't them, it was going to be somebody else. But the way that they went about it, how they kind of gaslit the situation and kind of made it seem like all the other wines were terrible. Even organic wine was absolutely awful, you know, compared to their wine. I thought that was a little bit slighted (laughs) yes there was there was um i can't remember the writer who um who published an article a few days ago but it it was actually just talking about the you know putting aside the the problems that we have with the notion of clean wine he was sort of outlining why it was genius marketing they used a great situation to catapult their product into a position where they exactly wanted it to to be and and on that behalf you know thinking of it from that perspective they did they did very well but Mm -hmm. but yet I think the problem that we have wine writers and people in the industry is more about what it insinuates about the rest of the industry and they they actually raise some they actually raise some important topics you know things that things that the industry are very aware of so use of herbicides and pesticides additive labeling transparency these are all things that are already um, hot topics in the industry and things that everybody is trying to improve upon. But I think what they did was insinuated that these are, you know, huge dirty secrets that the wine industry doesn't want anybody to know. And I think that's that's wrong for the consumer. You know, we can we can go on to talk about in this conversation what actually is in 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 a standard bottle of wine in terms of what actually is an additive in winemaking because i think even that word alone we we immediately think bad straight away and certainly it's not always the case particularly in winemaking many of the additives in winemaking are just completely natural products so to i think to tarnish the rest of the industry just to to sell a product was was a bit ethically you know perhaps wrong from an ethical stance and and I think what's been more questionable is since since the article come out, there's been some genuine questions raised and, and none of them have been answered. So I think that's why people are a bit sort of up in arms. Yeah, I think that I think you're definitely right on that. And it's one of those tricky lines. I think you're right when it comes to like marketing and how they've really pushed that kind of agenda to catapult their business. Because if you actually look at their company, they're still relatively small, but um, now they're definitely the topic of the week, I suppose, (laughs) because of how much controversy they sparked. You're 100% right. I mean, every now and again, the the wine industry is very, uh, very placid, but every now and again, um, a topic comes up that just seems to dominate every single corner of it. And, you know, they've certainly done that the last the last sort of five days. Uh, my sort of inbox and the conversations I've been having have been very much dominated by that topic. And in some ways, that's good because it makes us think about what we need to do 
you know, we, we have a long way to go in the wine industry in terms of letting people know exactly what's in wine because a friend of mine made an interesting point yesterday that for a product like, like that to be successful, it means that the, the general consumer hasn't been made aware of what actually is in wine. And that's that's something that we need to work on. We we need to let people know what the winemaking process looks like, and you know there are interesting ways to do that. But but ultimately, that's they they have raised some interesting points. They've just perhaps gone about it in the wrong way. Definitely, I think I think one of the main reasons why they even were able to well, I guess sell wine at all. <laughs> Um, would be because they really took advantage of the everyday consumer. And I think that the everyday consumer really doesn't know a lot about wine, you know, like, even though I know the basics of red and white and a rosé, I don't really know the very, very fine details. I know a couple of facts because I did take those one or two wine classes of basically how it's made and how dessert wines are made. And I thought that was, and you learn about the terrain and all these different things, you know, but from the average consumer, we really don't know. And so we, when we're marketed towards like the clean wine or the organic wine, we kind of make that same connotation with the food that we buy, you know, even though it's a completely different process. And like you said, that's not really a huge problem because most winemakers are already really care and value like what exactly goes into that bottle. And some of the references that they use, you know, to kind of almost not necessarily to demean other winemakers, but almost because they said that all the winemakers, you know, they just put it in a giant, their jug juice or whatever that they said. And so just the word choices that they used really made it seem like it was just grapes sloshing around and (laughs) adding a whole bunch of chemicals and, you know, like, you know, so it was just very interesting. Yeah, no, I think I think from like a from like a structural, you know, thinking about this from like a perspective of structural linguistics, sometimes the you can see the world through like binary oppositions, and it's important when we talk in marketing that what we don't say is is often as important as what we do. And like you say, there were there were no winemakers specifically mentioned, but some of the some of the terminology that was used and the the reference to additives and. And, you know, particularly on Instagram, they, they talk in terms of, you know, our livers and our brains, and it's, it's all very emotive. And it's making us think about our health when, when in reality, it's quite some distance from the truth. If we, if we think about what you, what you sort of just said about winemakers already thinking about what goes in the bottle, you know, wine is, um, wine is a labor of the land. And, and winemakers rely on the soils to provide longevity and viable products. So it's in their best interests to work in a way that, that means that for as long as they can, they can produce fantastic wine from, from a piece of land. And I think through the through recent decades, you know, we, we saw um, quite indiscriminate use of herbicides and pesticides, not only in, in viticulture, but in agriculture as well. And, and that served a purpose at the time in terms of making food affordable. But, but what we soon realized was that had a really bad effect on on the biodiversity of the land. And so in sort of the last decade and, and maybe longer in some cases, there's been a huge shift, particularly in viticulture, um, away from herbicides and pesticides. So mainly that it's it's not only it's not only to do with the fact that it's really bad for the soil but it's also economic as well you know if you can if you can get away with not spraying your vineyard all of the time it's it's going to be much cheaper for you as a as a farmer to to handle that land and and what we see now is um, you can see it very well in California the the idea of integrated pest management so people people are looking to plant particular 
particular um, weeds and, and cover crop, which which harbors pests, um, pests, natural predators. So they'll get rid of them naturally. They they look to only spray when when they know they really need to, if they do ever spray. So looking at it from sort of a, an environmental and ecological perspective, there's already a lot of work going into that, and I think people should feel quite confident that when they when they buy wine from their local store, that you know they're not buying something that's destroying the land in most cases. Right, right. And so, okay, so going into um, a little bit about how wine makes us feel, I suppose, they claimed that it would cure our hangovers, like (laughs) hangovers would not exist. And I honestly thought this was the most intriguing part of the entire article, because like, you know, when I... um, (laughs) Yeah, just, just, I mean, if just as a a side note, I know obviously you're in the States and I'm I'm in the UK, but from, we we have an organization called the ASA, which is um, advertising standards and that kind of advertising is is certainly illegal in the uk and i I would imagine if they do make a move here they they won't be able to say that you you would be immediately fined for claiming a product for claiming a product alleviates hangovers Wow. I don't know. Some people, though, like after this whole thing blew up, I like stalked their website <laughs> and their Instagram and just to see their social media and how yeah. they interacted with guests. Because as soon as I posted, I posted a photo relating to the previous podcast show that I did relating to that article. And I got so I don't know if you send some people my way, but immediately my DMs are flooded and they're like, hey, I don't think that you should be marketing these people. And I'm like, oh, well, like, sorry, my bad. <laughs> but the thing is, though, a lot of people who re- who have already bought their wine claimed they say that they haven't received any sort of hangover or anything like that so they continue to buy their product yeah and so I was wondering because I don't know I thought that I think I thought that was so intriguing because it's not I, I don't think I've ever really got gotten a hangover but sometimes when I drink really sweet wines I get like a little bit of a headache and my um, face turns you know red I think that just naturally happens with yeah. alcohol consumption I wasn't sure you know do you think that there could be some truth to it or is it really just a hoax to kind of sell more wine yeah, so I mean, there's 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 two things to think about in terms of the people who've bought the product and said, oh, you know, look, I didn't get a hangover. There's 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 two things I think at play there. One is you know confirmation bias is a is a strong thing. Sometimes if we if we're told something enough, we, we believe it. You know, we can see that in people who in uh, in clinical trials become ill when they haven't even taken a product that should make them ill. Right, like a, a placebo. Um, absolutely, yeah, and also, um, and also the the sort of opposite to placebo. There's there's the nocebo effect, where if you're told that something will result in something, you can often see those symptoms. So that's certainly a factor. But in terms of a hangover, you know, there are so many things that determine whether you'll get a hangover or not. It can be, you know, how hydrated you are, how much you drink, how much, what the alcohol content of the drink was, how much sleep you get, the size of you in terms of in proportion to what you drink. But but ultimately, alcohol, if you drink enough alcohol, you will get a hangover. So I actually checked some of this with, um, with a friend of mine who's a chemist yesterday, because I just wanted to check some of the, the things that they were saying, whether they were accurate. And, um, and he sort of basically explained to me that alcohol... Hangovers are the result of dehydration and an imbalance of electrolytes. So this is how the body reacts to to consumption of alcohol. And there was another claim about alcohol being processed in the brain, which was on their Instagram. Um, ten percent, something about ten percent of alcohol being processed in the brain, which is why we we feel fuzzy and things like this. So I checked with a with a PhD chemist yesterday, and he told me it's not true. There's only one sort of um, dehydrogenase from alcohol that's processed outside of the liver, and it's not in the brain. So so even that is not true. But per- 
no, the science indicates that there is no, you know, there is no miracle cure. If you if you drink enough alcohol, you will get a hangover. You know, there are factors that will control how much of a hangover you get. You know, some wines are sixteen percent alcohol, and some are eleven. You know, some some might be you know lower and higher than that. But but no, there is no there is no wine on the market that will alleviate a hangover. If you if you don't want to get a hangover, the the only way to do that really is <laughs> the only way to to do that is to avoid drinking excessive amounts of alcohol and uh, you know sometimes Drink a lot of water yeah sometimes if I have a really heavy night I'll I'll really try and pile on the water um mm-hmm. before I go to sleep but but even then I don't think that um I don't think that saves you but it's <laughs> I think it's an irresponsible claim because you know there's a lot of people that I mean one we should all be drinking responsibly anyway because you know as as fun as alcohol can be it's 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 not healthy in in large doses and and also there are people that struggle with with alcoholism and and seeing adverts for products that give you less of a hangover could be could be very appealing to those people and that's true and i think that's you know i think that's where we have to be careful as much as we want to sell a product we have to be we have to be you have to consider you know all angles Right. Because you write so much about wine, I wanted to know what your favorite wine recommendations and then also how would you what tips would you leave for people to be able to navigate wine a little bit more responsibly in the future for the average Joe person? Yes, I mean, my favorite wine, I suppose. I'm I quite like I lean heavily towards the old world, so I like I like wine from Burgundy in France. I like northern Italian wine, so sort of Barolo and Barbaresco, which has had quite a renaissance in the US over over recent years. What does that taste like? So Barolo and Barbaresco are both made from Nebbiolo, which is um which is a grape that is sort of um native to the to northern Italy, to Piemonte. They're very fruit forward in their youth. So they're 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 red cherries and they're, they're mm. strawberry and then on the nose they've got a lot of sort of wildflowers and roses and a little bit of it sounds unattractive but but like freshly laid tar on a road mm-hmm. and then on the on the palate they're they're quite tannic so they especially when they're young they can feel a bit dry on the on the palate but they're they're very very pretty very elegant floral wines um but mm. but they're quite well they're quite readily readily available in the US I know Barolo and Barbaresco have had quite a resurgence in the states um, many of the northern italian producers that I speak to tell me that their biggest market is um is the US so you should be able to find um I think there's a producer called the Prodatori del Barbaresco who sell in I think is Costco like a, a a store for you guys? Yes. Yeah, I think they're they're stocked in there uh, if I can remember for for about fifteen dollars, which is a really good price. Okay. So and in terms of in terms of people thinking if they you know there are there are genuine reasons when you when you're buying wine to to think about what you consume, whether it be you know if you are thinking ecologically and you you want to think about the environment, or whether you've got a philosophical stance in terms of just wanting to buy products with as little as possible added. Those are those are genuine uh, and valid reasons to to think about what you buy. But I think one piece of advice is just find a local wine store, um, a small independent wine store. You know they're, they're dotted all over the place, and and usually the people who run them are really passionate about the products that they stock, and they're more than willing. To, to have a brief conversation with you and sort of outline what different wines are and producers are very transparent in terms of what they do and don't don't do so these guys will know but you can always look for certifications so things like organic certifications and when we look for sort of regional classifications like on a label you may see DOCG whilst this is a 
in some way an indicator of quality. It's not always an indicator of, you know, um, no herbicides or pesticides because that can change by, by the region. But my overriding piece of advice would be just find a local wine store and speak to the person who runs it. You know, you'll, you'll end up walking out with a good wine at a good price um, and they'll value the custom. Nice. No, I think that's good. Sometimes I think that shopping local is always your best bet because you get to see the face behind who makes it. So if you feel a little bit uncertain, then you know the person. And oftentimes um, they'll even show you the vineyard or where yeah. or the location of where they get it from. And they're very proud of it too. It's a very different energy. They're very proud of where they get their wa- their grapes and where it's produced or yeah, often um, often you find with the small independent winemakers, they've they've got a motive. So they they might have opened a store because they want to champion particular winemakers or or particular regions. And and like you say, that that gives them sort of a different level of commitment to the to the product. But mm-hmm. I wanted to give you sort of an, a brief idea of when when we talk about additives in wine. So there was a lot of there was a lot of advertising with with clean wine and with good clean wine about you know not having any additives. Mm-hmm. or less additives I, I wanted to just give a super quick outline of of what a, what an additive is in a wine so whilst there are sort of you know there might be 60 or 70 additives available to a winemaker but most winemakers will use maybe three or four of those so very rarely again going back to to the economics if you can add as little as possible it, it makes it more commercially viable but mm-hmm. in terms of additives the, the most common is is sulfur so sulfur dioxide is a natural product we've been you know we've been using it in winemaking since around the 1400s um, and basically it's used as an antioxidant so it, it stops spoilage and bacterial growth uh, and it also stops wine from oxidizing so when they when winemakers put the wine into the bottle they'll they'll put a tiny bit of sulfur uh, in the bottle to make sure that by the time you get it there's no spoilage so it basically kills any bacteria in the wine and usually if you test a finished wine you probably have about 20 to 200 parts per million and if you think about that in compared to you know if you eat dried fruit or you know sometimes I see you know I eat bags of dried fruit in Mm -hmm. in a handful of dried fruit you've probably got about 3,000 parts per million of sulfur so it's a widely used product um, often sourced naturally and it's ultimately there for quality control, but producers are still, you know, very discriminate in terms of using it. They they don't want to use too much. But on top of that, additives are quite rare in the winemaking process. You know, I know they talked about mega purple, which is a coloring and, and dyes and additional sugars. But these things really are, for, are saved for really cheap commercial wines. So mm-hmm. if you're buying a wine that's from your local store, it's not going to have these things in. And everything else that we think about that goes into wine, if it's um, if it's a, a poor vintage and, and the wine needs a bit of acidity, they'll, they'll add some tartaric acid, which is naturally present in grapes. Or if the wine is too acidic, they'll add a bit of calcium carbonate, which is a natural a natural product um, just to balance it yeah so just to pull that acidity back or pull it down but but again many good producers choose not to do this they'd rather do the work in the vineyard so this is this is quite rare and and then the the final one is um where the vegan concern comes in so when you're making a wine there's often lots of bits of grape and skin and different things floating around it's a natural product so particularly with white wines sometimes producers will use um a fining agent so traditionally it was an egg white or um uh, the something called isinglass, which is a fish bladder, dried fish bladder, mm-hmm. and but now what we we tend to see with vegan, uh, with the concern over vegan vegan products growing is like a, a clay, but what happens is 
it goes into the wine. The, the bits are floating in the wine, suspended. They cling on to um, the fining agent, and then that fining agent actually drops out of the wine. So it, it, it's not in the finished product. Um, and to secure that, the wine goes through a filtration process usually, which is through a natural filter, which removes any of those elements. So by the time you get the bottle of wine, anything that's been done to make it the finished product is, is pretty much gone. That's good. Thank you for adding that part. I think it's important to reference that because I think that we sometimes nitpick a lot of the additives that we will and won't accept, but even the most organic uh, products, even food products, you know, have some sort of additive just to preserve it, whether that's a lemon product or something like that, you know, so I think that's very important. You made a great point there about with organic products. You know, organic products doesn't mean that there'll be no sulfur. And it also doesn't mean that there won't be any additives. It just means that those additives are more conscious. You know, for example, in if you've ever done any bread making or you've seen artisanal bread makers, they will add um, vitamin C to the bread to, mm-hmm. to preserve it, which is essentially what sulfur does in wine. Um, and, and that's considered to be an additive, but it's just vitamin C. And, you know, I think right. the word additive and the, there are genuine reasons to be concerned, you know, God, if we look back to to the history of what mm-hmm. what has been in food, sometimes we're we're right to be concerned and we're we're right to want to know, but but we should be careful not to demonise the word because often it's actually just farmers trying to make a viable product that that's high quality and consistent. And obviously, to do that, sometimes you need to add a bit of sulphur, or you know, you might need to spray in the vineyard. But it's worth noting that in the US and all around the world, there are regulations that control legally the amount of sulphur that can go. In to a wine there's regulations that control the maximum residue level of pesticides in a vineyard and if your wine exceeds those levels you can't sell the product so we have all these regulations in place to protect the consumer and i think people should have some confidence that you know when they buy a bottle of wine from a local store that they are buying something that thought has gone into and and conscious about the soil and the the product and the consumer and and don't feel like you need to buy a product that's called clean wine to get something that matches your um, your ethical and philosophical. Right. It's funny because even ironically, um, they don't disclose any of that information that <laughs> no, you mentioned. No. So that's um, that that was a bit of a bugbear for me. You know, I think if if they'd have if they'd have come out and been super transparent. That would have been actually really impressive. It would have been really impressive to see all of the data. But there actually is, there's far less information on their website than there is on a standard winemaking website. You know, they don't tell us how much sulfur they use. They don't tell us what how they work in the vineyard, what their what their spray protocol is. They they don't tell us the winemaking process. And, and I'm just speculating here and I don't want to, you know, this is my genuine, this is my personal opinion i i think that they're buying bulk wine um so you can you can buy bulk wine on the open market um very easily you or i could go online speak to a broker and and buy a shipment of wine but the problem with that is it's very difficult to get information about the actual product because it's just bulk wine in the open market and my my suspicion is that they are buying bulk wine and rebranding it they're they're branding it under clean wine and that's their usp so they're actually buying a product that is just a standard product it might not be inferior it could be decent but they don't have the available information and i am aware of i am aware of a journalist here in the uk who is who is trying to get a bottle of the wine over to the uk and is planning to uh, have it sampled in a lab 
So we'll be able mm -hmm. to see pesticide residue, herbicide residue, how much sulfur was used. So that could be that could be an interesting development <laughs> for them if they if it turns out that there's a that there's a ton of herbicides and pesticides in in the wine. <laughs> right, uh, because I I looked at their website and it is very very vague, and so I really just didn't know what the wine was at all. Did you so um, did you find interest in the? There was a label that said uh, "Made in Europe." on on one of the the products it, it just said made in europe and that is just the most vague thing ever you know europe is huge and i think i think also the problem what i don't quite understand is there are so many fantastic producers in the us I, i'm mm -hmm. unsure as to why they had to go to europe and right. I, I also think that i also think that saying made in europe kind of insinuates that that's an indicator of quality when in fact it's not there's fantastic wine from all over the world and right ah oh, it's it it, it was a a little bit frustrating almost because you're right there are really great regions here in the US but the thing is though when you pick something like Europe the entire mass just to break it down for the listeners out there like France is chopped up in teeny tiny pieces of where that wine is that's yep. how particular wine is like wine the wine industry like it really depends on what little area a plot of land each grape is grown so just to put your all of europe just all of it just you know spain makes really good wine yeah, <laughs> so sure. the fact that it was just i don't know i just think that was a, a little bit too broad yeah, I mean, a little bit. like you said, just just if you look at one region in France, you know, you could look to Burgundy and there could be 250 different regional classifications in Burgundy alone. So right. it just doesn't tell the consumer anything. So I think they've walked into an open trap, to be honest. I think they personally, I think they're just trying to sell a product, which I don't which I don't necessarily think is a problem. You know, everybody has the right to, to enter an open market. But I think if I think if you are going to enter that market with a with a product that makes you know very strong claims, I think you are then going to have to be prepared for people to to challenge those claims. You know whether it be a skincare product or a health product or um, right, you have to back it up. Yeah, for sure. And when you know people, when people like you ask questions, and or people like me, or people on anyone on Instagram, and you know if they see their questions being deleted or not answered, they're they're going to be suspicious, and and that's going to damage your credibility and your longevity, particularly in an industry like wine. Exactly. Okay, so something that I do with all of my guests here on the show is that if the listeners didn't have a single opportunity to listen to anything we have said thus far, <laughs> um, what kind of tips or advice would you like to leave them with? Um, so for, for me, explore wine a little bit more. Don't think of wine as you know a boring subject that's got nothing to offer. It, it's really fantastic. Get out into you know your local vineyard, speak to your local producer, and and go out to a bar and try some different wines. And don't think it needs to be pretentious. You don't need to know anything. Just go out, pick a bottle up, and pour it in your glass. And if you enjoy it, drink some more of it because. You know, I don't like this idea that we need to know loads of stuff about wine. Just go out, mm -hmm. enjoy it, travel, visit a vineyard, see the sites, talk to the producers. Uh, I guarantee, you know, before long, you'll be you'll be like me with hundreds of bottles of wine all around your house. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really great advice. Something I always like to recommend is that if you know absolutely nothing about wine, going to seasonal tastings, they're very cheap. You know, they're only like $10, $15 most times to get a little one ounces of like nine different glasses. And then you can kind of learn to see what you like, what you don't like. You can learn about where certain 
Um, usually they're based on either region or like uh, seasonal flavors. Like in fall, you'll get a lot more of the reds. Um, and then obviously in like the summer, you'll get lighter, you know, wider wines or like uh, orange inspired wines and things like that. So yep. I always recommend tastings because they're pretty affordable. You know, like sometimes I don't I, I know you can probably relate to the feeling of picking up a bottle of wine that was like $20 and it's awful. So <laughs> yeah. it's good to just kind of explore yeah. what you like and don't like. Yeah. And and if you've got a local wine bar, you know, go to your local wine bar with some friends and, and just ask the people who work there, you know, we, we don't know what we like, we want to explore, give us a few different glasses of wine and we'll try them and then talk to me about them after. And, and I think you'll find that, you know, people will be really excited to have people come in and do that. Um, mm -hmm. They'll be excited to talk to you about the product. So go off, take a little leap away from what you've tried before and let somebody just you know take you on a little exploration of, of wine in, in your local bar no that's so great thank you so much for being a guest on the show i loved having you no problem thanks for inviting me it was really good thank you guys so much for tuning in to the bonus episode if you want to keep up with josh and learn a lot about wine please go check out his blog word on the grapevine all of his information is located in the show notes also word on the grapevine on instagram he has all the links and attachments there his instagram is really aesthetic with all the different wine recommendations so i definitely recommend checking him out if you're enjoying the show don't forget to leave a review wherever you're listening i always love to hear feedback from you guys if you want to keep up with the show on instagram you can follow us at precious the foodie also on youtube at precious pioneer but other than that have a wonderful rest of your weekend bye